Hi, I'm Neil Ellingson, podcast editor. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Matt Fitzgerald interviewing widely lauded columnist and author David Brooks about the turn toward faith his work has taken. Here he is, David Brooks. So I feel like we ought to talk about politics a little bit at least, but I wanted to start with something that I heard you say recently in a different podcast, actually, an an interview um, that you did with E.J. Dion or alongside him. And in that, you said that you didn't really see politics as your primary meaning maker any longer or as the primary meaning maker any longer. And I'm curious about how you got to that conclusion and, and what you see emerging as a primary meaning maker in its place. Yeah, uh, well, I'm a big believer in Samuel Johnson's uh, couplet that of all the things that human hearts endure, how few are those that kings can cause and cure. And the point is that most of the things that make our lives worthwhile and meaningful uh, do not have to do with politics. They have to do with our relationships, our beliefs, um, our virtue or non-virtue, and that politics can touch us catastrophically when the system completely breaks down. But at least we're lucky enough to live in a country where um, a change, even a change in administration as dramatic as this one, um, there are certain checks and balances on what politics can touch and what it can do. And uh, so it, it's a field of limited endeavor, I think. I read this wonderful thing from Miroslav Volf last week, right after the election, and he said it's important to remember that though politics touches everything, it is not everything, not by a long shot. Yeah, I think if we, when we look back on our lives, um, we look back on our family or our our marriage or um, maybe the our vocation or you know the community, local community service, uh, and so we just don't look back on well that law was passed where this law was passed, and, you know, I'm not even sure, and as I think about it, I'm very involved in politics, but I'm not sure the Obama administration touched my life directly in any way, uh, aside from me covering them. Uh, and so it's worth keeping that in mind. And it should be said, though, of course, that if politics falls apart and you're in a land of chaos and lawlessness, then then that is the first priority, but we don't, we're a little fortunate enough not to live in that land. We have this buffer of stability, but I do think it, it tends to get, I mean, we get panicky and in the situation in this last election. In some ways, the the prognostications were so grim. If Trump were to win, now we're sort of in this like waiting for the other shoe to drop moment. My wife, we have three little kids. My wife and I woke up early the day after the election and said, oh my goodness, first thing we have to do is tell the children not to be afraid because we'd created this sense of fear for them. Yeah. And of course, you know, a president can do damage or can do great good, but we have checks and balances. Uh, and I think sometimes our hysteria about politics is more damaging than what actually happens in politics. And I do think people who, who, who see it as their partisan affiliation is almost their form of ethnicity, their, their, the, the identity in their lives are doing violence to themselves. Do you think that that sense of identity and loyalty to a political perspective, and again, also the assumption that it is a meaning maker or the primary meaning maker, is that tied to the decline of or the sort of way in which religious narratives have receded? Have I mean, we don't have something that's making great meaning culturally any longer for many people. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think our public discussion is uh, over-politicized and under-moralized, and that we don't have 
conversations of the sort that Reinhold Niebuhr was leading or Billy Graham or Abraham Joshua Heschel, at least in the secular conversation. And therefore, we use politics as sort of symbols for what are actually moral disagreements and moral panics. Uh, and that that's a very violent way to... And as a result, our politics turns into a totalistic war of all against all. And we can't actually face what we're actually talking about, the underlying moral issues. Do you think that the inability to face the underlying moral issues, is that a, a, a lack of moral vocabulary you've said before? Is that a part of it, that we don't have a common moral vocabulary any longer to speak with each other through? Yeah, I think partly it's a lack of um, vocabulary, just having the words in common, you know, words like race and redemption and sin, uh, having a common moral sources for reasons which I don't entirely understand. Um, members of the clergy or no are much less likely to be public intellectuals than they were in the 50s. Um, and so we don't have the voices. Um, and uh, I think, and then there's, because we've become a more diverse society, a lot of institutions which used to engage in moral discussions have decided, well, we, our job is to be value neutral and you do whatever you want um, and all lives are equal. And that's more or less the universities. Yeah. And then finally, I'd say everything has, um, life, at least for the educated classes, just gotten more competitive. And so there's just a lot of time spent on the job and focusing on career. So you're writing from what's assumed to be a secular space, certainly on a secular page, your, your work for the New York Times editorial page. And yet you're interjecting these moral claims. I mean, does that land on your readership? Is it incoherent? Is it provocative? How, 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 what kind of pushback do you get? Or is it welcome? Is it like water in the desert to people? Yeah, I think it's, I found it's phenomenally welcome. I've taken the column off in uh, directions that are um, unusual for a column. Mostly what we do is that we talk about politics, who's up, who's down, debate the merits of this or that policy. And that's normally the job of a political columnist. Uh, and yet when I've gone off and um, gone to the realm of what is forgiveness, what is the role of suffering in our life, um, grief, um, what does graciousness looks like, I would say those are some of my most popular columns. And so and partly it's because not many people are supplying that need, but I think there's a widespread hunger for, um, for people just to talk about those issues. Uh, a hunger that's just not being met by the market. And to have, it, it, at some level, for this happens for me at least, when I read your column and I read you touching upon those themes, even though I'm a minister, I'm working with and for hundreds of people who ostensibly at least speak a Christian vocabulary and are comfortable talking that way. Nevertheless, when I see it in black and white in the paper or read it online, I feel validated somehow, like, oh, I'm not the only person out there who's wrestling with these things and troubled by them or comforted by them. There's a sense of community that, that or, I don't know, commonality that comes through. Yeah, I, a lot of what I'm doing is sermons without explicit reference to Scripture. <laughs> um, and my speeches are actually more like that than my, uh, my columns. And your columns uh, are much shorter all... than my sermons, too, so uh, that's another reason people <laughs> well, would like that, them. I wish they weren't, but they are. Um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, I, um, I, I feel we're sort of involved in the same business. I just uh, 
I've chosen to be, a, and I think I'm called to be a secular writer for a secular audience. And one of the things that's interesting to me is that without having any religious label attached to me, uh, I do think I have access to audiences that um, maybe clergy don't have. There's a certain number of people who just won't listen to anything that seems to them religious. And then among those who are faithful, um, there's some tendency to stay within one's group. Um, Protestants reading Protestants, uh, Catholics reading Catholics, Jews reading Jews. Uh, and and finally, there are just a lot of people who consider themselves spiritual and religious, but um, just don't have access on a daily, on a weekly basis to anything because they don't attend church. Um, and so I, I try to reach all those people without um, saying, you know, I'm speaking for for this for and from this doctrine. So you're not coming from an explicitly confessional place, and it it gives you a broader broader audience, but also a capacity, yeah. right? That Do you feel it to do that work with your column? Does it feel in that kind of classically Lutheran sense, vocational? Does it feel like a call to, to speak that way? Yeah, very much. Um, you know, it, it's vocational and there's a sense of call in the narrow sense, just to being a writer. I decided I want to become a writer at age seven. So um, that's pretty early and I've been doing that ever since. But even in the last, I would say three years, uh, I feel a very strong sense of call um, to um, uh, to try to shift the culture, shift the debate over a little uh, in the direction of more moral conversation. And and not only that, not just value-neutral moral conversation, uh, more a uh, sense of grace and um, a sense of redemption, the sense that there is a purpose to the world, that we were put here for a reason, uh, and that... Um, there's a, a better way to live than many of us have been living. Were you surprised by that? That by that own by by your own um, emerging vocation around that need? I mean, did you look out at the culture and say nobody's doing this, so might as well be me? Or was it less coherent than that? Yeah, it was less coherent. I just started. You know, when you're a columnist, you learn to be narcissistic, <laughs> and you learn to follow your own interests. And you learn to use your writing to work out your own issues, more or less. And so these are concerns that had become urgent to me just as a human being. Um, and so I wanted to, I was reading about them naturally. I, I can only think by writing. And so, and I have a job that requires a lot of writing, so I wasn't going to do it privately. Um, and so a lot of the columns are issues that I'm really dealing with quite personally uh, but I, and I address them sort of in an oblique way, um, in public. So I don't say exactly the person, the issue I'm dealing with, but I, I'll dance around the issue and go to some general concern that's related to my own personal, um, life. I think, uh, there are many, many more preachers out there who, uh, use that exact same method and then would, pr- then would probably admit it, uh, including I've, myself. I've certainly felt when I speak, especially when I speak at a church, I, definitely feel that old saying that you you convert yourself from the pulpit. I definitely feel that. Absolutely. I mean, you just said you don't know what you think until you write it out. For a lot of religiously minded people, religiously minded writers anyhow, um, we don't know what we believe until we write either. That's true for me at least. Yeah. I, you know, I'll read stuff and then I'll underline it and I'll, I'll see good points, but I can't synthesize. I don't have the discipline to mentally synthesize it unless I have to write it down. So, 
a lot of what I do is I read through books. I'm looking at a Jürgen Moltmann book right in front of me. Uh, and I underline, then I zero off the pages. And then I organize them into my own um, my own thoughts, which are often an amalgam of a lot of other people's different thoughts that I'm just cribbing. <laughs> uh, Stanley Harawa says, uh, any good idea I ever had is one that I forgot where I read it. Um, <laughs> what Moltmann? Uh, Theology of Hope. I, I just um, was swept up. I read it years and years ago in a book I was doing about just American hopefulness. I just grabbed it off the shelf before I had any interest in theology, really, and was just swept up in the, the eschatological vision, what, a, what a, that sort of vision could be and how it can inform a life. I wanted to ask you about eschatology, actually. In, in your book, The Road to Character, one way to read it is as a series of illustrations, biographical examples of people who embody the virtuous life by living out a set of universal moral principles. And some theologians that I've read that I like offer a strong critique of any kind of universalist ethic or the attempt to define one. They, they argue basically that religious truth is always going to be unavoidably particular, that a given religion is going to issue forth a particular unique ethic and that these ethics, although they might have a lot of overlap, we hope that they do, they do of course, but that they're also bound to differ from each other because they're grounded again in these different religious languages or perspectives. So a Christian ethic is going to look different from a Buddhist one. Stanley Harawas gets at this via Christian eschatology. So he says that uh, universal moral principles aren't enough, that they're inadequate because unavoidably they work with what we've got. And so they describe the world as it is, maybe as the world ought to be, but only by using the materials that we already have at hand. So on the other hand, scripture, here I'll quote Harawas, scripture doesn't just bolster our moral intentions, it affects how we perceive the world and hence what the moral life is about. Metaphor, story, scripture, don't just describe the known, they reveal dimensions of the unknown that make the known seem unfamiliar. So I'd add that Christian eschatology tells us what kind of morality is intended for us, what kind of morality is coming to us even, and what, it, you know, what kind of morality gets pulled out of us because of that, not just what we've got to work with right now. So it then creates a different, maybe even unique ethic because of how strange it is. How does that sit in your framework? Does, do you buy that or yeah. does it seem? I, I do buy it. I, I think I was speaking uh, sloppily um, when I talked about principles because I am not a Platonist. That's never really resonated. The idea that there's some ideal essence of, of justice out there um, Two, at least speaking personally, I'm, I'm very bad at thinking in abstraction. Uh, I became a reporter rather than an academic uh, because I needed, I needed to see what I was writing about right in front of me. Third, I think that sense gives us a a sense of um, uh, of the our own fallenness. So that you, if you talk about an abstract, an abstract principle without reference to human nature and our own brokenness, um, you're you're abstracting away from the core reality. And finally, I do think we are uh, with Augustine. We're loving creatures more than thinking creatures, and that our thoughts are slaves to our passions, and that our our passions are often very wise, not all the time, but often very wise, and they're going to be aroused by story um, and aroused by the meanings of stories. Uh, And so one of the things um, I I do think, like, no one I've ever met has sat down and said, uh, what is 
virtue. I think I'll, I'll, I'll throw out six eternal principles of virtue and then I'll chase that. <laughs> they, they fall in love with a person. They fall in love with a God. They fall in love with a, a way of being in the world or they fall in love with some hero that they're trying to imitate. Uh, and we, it's our desires that come first and our desires are aroused by not a story, not an abstraction, but a, a specific story, a specific person, a specific concept of, of the God. So even theological doctrines that are almost by definition abstract, like sin and grace, don't really make sense until, back to Augustine, until we reckon with our own personal sinfulness and our own personal love or God's love for us, right? That none of this stuff is really going to make sense theoretically. It has to be, it has to make sense emotionally and experientially first. Yeah. And one of the things I like about C.S. Lewis is that when faith happened to him, you almost get the sense it happened to him as an observer, as a writer. It wasn't necessarily, it was, it seemed to be because it explained the world to him. Uh, and, uh, so it was a living guide to a living world rather than, um, some philosophical set of principles. Absolutely. I love that. There's a moment in surprised by joy where he talks about that, where he, where it just comes out of the clear blue sky, uh, like blindsides him. Um, yeah, that's, and then he, uh, what a genius he was. Um, so when you read theology, David, are, are you, did you begin reading it, um, like as a tool in your toolbox as a public intellectual, like, okay, here's a, you know, I can make sense of the world politically. We can make sense of the world philosophically, historically, here's another way. Um, or like, was that your original intent at least, or did it, maybe you weren't that intentional one way or another about it? Yeah, it was very much that way. I would, I mean, say Niebuhr, who was really the first person I read seriously, uh, we were in those days locked in a cold war and I was trying to figure out how to, how to wield power in ways that were sometimes morally complicated. Uh, and he was a moral realist who explained, or gave some indications of how to do that, how to not get punctured by pride, to not, um, think you're better than you are, but to, to, uh, to act in a way that's consistent with some sense of modesty and humility. And with Niebuhr especially, and I've started with the irony of American history, but then we move on to the other ones, um, and I would just skip all the God parts. <laughs> so whenever he started talking about God, I'd like skip over, skip, skip, skip. Uh, and I found I could pretty much do that with Niebuhr, which is why he's famously called uh, every atheist's favorite theologian. Yeah. Um, and, and, then, um, and then I got into the God parts too. But I do think it's a way of seeing the world, and what, what's especially beautiful about theology in general is that it's a way of seeing the world that starts with a sense of modesty, which is not something you would always say about how economists see the world or political scientists see the world. Uh, second, it accounts for the subjective very beautifully. The, the, you know, economists and political scientists make these correlations and they can capture things which are measurable in data, but um, they can always capture things which are measured in flavor and which are measured in just the quirkiness of human behavior and uh, they can't measure what's personal and I find theology at its best is extremely personalistic uh, one of my favorite sayings is Emerson souls are not saved in bundles uh, that they're saved one by one and so I've, I always admired the personalism 
And then finally, um, I do think, again, this is just using theology as a way to understand the world. I do think a lot of our academic disciplines have just become over-specialized, over-blinded by their own methodology. And uh, human behavior is too complicated to be captured by any one academic discipline. But theology, at least the kind that goes out into the popular sphere, is interdisciplinary. It's not as methodological. Often it's based just on observation and and faith and the inherited wisdom of either scripture or previous theologians. And so it has a, a, a more direct contact with reality at its best than a lot of the other disciplines, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I find in my own reading of theology, in my own life of faith, I sort of, I mean, I was, my father was a preacher, but in a very classically liberal low Christology kind of Christian way. And, um, it didn't, as I, as I got into later adolescence and went off to college, it didn't really have much of a hold on me. Uh, although I was steeped in those stories as a kid, when I went back and started reading academically as a college student, I found that unlike anything else I was reading, theology pulled me into a different reality and it put a claim on me and, and wouldn't, wouldn't let me step outside of its frame. William Willimon says, you know, you read the Bible and it doesn't want to give you information. It wants to change you. Um, and I think good theology does the same thing. But there's a little something disturbing about that too. I mean, <laughs> you started off by saying it's, you know, it's, it's, it starts from a place of modesty and, you know, here's all the things we can't know. Good theologians, I think, are making that assumption. But all of a sudden, <laughs> unlike anything else I'm reading, it's, it's like turned my life upside down. Yeah, uh, but, you know, all, all writing sh- should aspire to some sense of that. Um, um, it just has uh, stronger resources at its disposal. Um, I was just in a, a study a group that I'm a member of, and we just did Lewis's The Four Loves. And th- that's in particular a book that's maybe stronger on behavioral observation than it is on apologetics. Um, but, you know, he goes through and what it feels like to be in love, what it feels like to have a friendship. You know, friendships are side by side and love is face to face. Just a series of observations of what it feels like to be this thing. And grace is infused, uh, faith is infused in those observations. Um, and I guess the, the thing theology has at its, um, as a strength is that it's hard to understand human behavior if you do not think people have souls. And if you're just trying to reduce them to... Um, evolutionary pressures or utilitarian drives to me you're you're uh, you're not it's very hard for you to account for how people actually behave when they're yearning for some piece of transcendence which i think happens all the time when they're behaving altruistically which i think happens all the time when they live their life as if leading a life of meaning is more important than leading a life of money and power which I think for a lot of people happens all the time. A lot of people go into professions um, where meaning and faithfulness is a lot more important to them than the normal things, the secular things that we think are driving and motivate behavior. And if you don't have some understanding of the soul's yearning, um, then you're just not getting reality right. Their behavior doesn't make sense, right? It seems contrary. Do you think that... One thing I've found in terms of 
having that lens, I agree with you completely. It allows you to account for the lives of the people that you see more clearly than you can without it. But as we, as our moral vocabulary gets less eloquent, as we become less, um, you know, less facile with it, I've seen a strange thing happen in the liberal church, at least, where to speak in terms of the deep tradition of Christianity saying yes or no, making moral judgment, is only seen, it's categorically seen as oppressive. Um, so I recently wrote this thing about polyamory, saying, you know, go ahead and do it, you know, get into that kind of arrangement if that's your thing, but don't try and square that with the way that Christians understand what it means to be loyal and what it means to practice fidelity. And we do that because we believe, you know, that that's who God is. And that's how God extends himself to us. And I thought I made a nifty little argument. And the blowback I got was just extraordinary. Like the only way, even talking to other people of faith, the only way it could be heard was as to stifle me and my need and my desire and my expression of it is limiting, right? And, and that can't happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, that is, um, I, have, um, I have a friend who's thinking about this subject, and I confess I don't know how to think about it myself on judgmentalism. Um, and I do think there's, there are some things that are clearly wrong, and um, Scripture tells us so. Um, and I, I, if you can't at least defend a proposition or interpret a passage with a sense that one life is better than the other, then all lives are equal. And, you know, why try? Right. Um, why not just do what seems superficially the easiest thing? And yet I do think, uh, even though we officially, um, as a culture, um, object to judgmentalism as a reality, uh, we don't actually do that. We, we live very differently than we say we live. And I find there's moral judgment all around. And some of it I agree with and some of it I don't. But, you know, I teach at Yale, and we've gone through these moral um, crusades over race and over gender and over the, all these things. And it's not that there's no moral judgment going on. It's just that sometimes it's a judgment that doesn't admit, it, admit its name. And sometimes it's a, it's a different sort of morality, really based on honor, shame, and um, loyalty to the collective, and sometimes based on some other moral tradition, whether it's radical autonomy. Uh, whether it's a radical secularist or utilitarian uh, belief system, but it's never no belief system. There's always, there's, you know, we are, you know, when you sit down on the bus and you watch other parents with their kids, you judge them right away. <laughs> and it's not like we we're making moral judgments constantly. Uh, and we have moral sentiment constantly. It's just that we pretend that we are tolerant of all things. I've never met anybody who actually is. I think that's right. And and I, it does feel to me like we believe in societal systemic sin as much as we ever have, maybe more than we ever have, and we're good at pointing it out, which is, that's not a bad thing. But at the same time, our, our belief in personal sin, or at least my personal sin, right? My personal sinfulness is maybe at an all-time low, um, yeah. which is, there's a certain, there's an incoherence as a result. Um. In in the road to character, you you draw this really helpful distinction. I felt like it answered a question I'd been sitting with for for years, and I um, I jumped up out of my chair in my living room when I read it. I loved it. Between 
um, a morally realistic climate and a morally romantic climate. You're sketching it sort of in terms of, of cultural and, and, and intellectual history. And you say that there was a time, um, and in America you say it's you know basically right up until World War II, where we were morally realistic, where we as individuals had a sense of our own limitations, of our sinfulness, of the fact that you say the self was something to be tamed. Um, and then there was this shift after the war, partially because between the Depression and World War II, there was just you know right. all these years of austerity. Um, and you say it came to full flower in the 60s and the 70s, but really got moving in the, in the 40s and 50s, that we shifted from that morally realistic climate to a morally romantic climate where suddenly our, our estimation of, of what it meant to be human got a lot more optimistic. And there was a sense, of, okay, rather than to be the best person I can be, rather than getting to be the best person I can be by controlling myself, by cultivating the good in me and and tamping down my darker impulses. Instead, there's a shift to the way to be the best person I can be is to be me and to sort of let my, right. you say, my, the golden figure deep inside me kind of out, right? Yeah. I love that distinction. I think it's really helpful. Which of those two climates were you raised in? I think I was raised in, well, I was, you know, I was raised in the 70s and the 80s. A uh, time where I would say the self-esteem movement was at its high watermark, at a time when um, follow your passion and um, when I think moral relativism was really at its high watermark. Uh, Alan Bloom wrote the closing of the American mind while I was in college, uh, uh, fifty feet away from him, uh, and so I, I think I was definitely a product of the climate that said you were you were good inside you with a little inner angel. And that most of the corruptions are outside of you. Um, it doesn't actually square with reality when sometimes we behave in ways that are um, um, shocking to ourselves. And it, it doesn't also, I, th I think more than that, most of us can go through life, if we don't do anything really horrible in our lives, can go through life thinking, um, I seem to be reasonably good. <laughs> I, I'm nice to my family. I treat my kids well. People seem to like me. Uh, and I think it's very easy to glide through life with that sense of one's own goodness. Um, but to do that, you sort of have to ignore all the sins of omissions you cause. Um, and you, I think you do settle for sort of moral mediocrity that is ultimately doesn't give you peace. And I guess in my own case, I, I had, to, I was living a life that was, we would say was, um, just undemand, morally undemanding and maybe unreflective. And then at a certain age, um, you you want to have some sense of deeper peace, deeper mission, uh, some some higher sense of joy, and uh, some content contact with something eternal and purposeful. And if you've been leading the life of sort of yeah, I'm fine, I'm, I'm living a bourgeois happy life, I think you wind up as as Nietzsche called the last man, and I think you you're going to wind up, or at least I will say I wound up. Uh, profoundly dissatisfied with that life. In the book, you say that Augustine, you know, actually, you describe Augustine in terms very similar to to the way you just described yourself at some level, a, a, your own sort of like spiritual maturation, at least. But you say when he got to that crisis point, he dove rather than looking out, 
in reaching out to touch the hand of God, he sort of collapsed, not collapsed, but dove inward. Um, and right. in looking inside himself then, all of a sudden he found himself pulled back out in a more profound way. Um, did it function like that for you as well? I mean, did you go kind of, okay, this, is this all there is? And then you start asking yourself hard questions, and then out of that one becomes aware of grace? Yeah, I, um, I think, and I find this with a lot of seekers, um, that they're looking for God as a sort of tanning lamp. Uh, they, they, they wander through life and they think, well, you know, it'd be nice if I could believe in God. And they're looking for this source of warm glow that'll shine down on them. Uh, and maybe some people find that, and maybe Paul found it on the road to Damascus, I don't know. But um, I think what, what uh, Augustine teaches us is that God is within, which is not to say he's narcissistically within, but uh, he went into his mind and first observed himself psychologically, observed things like his own memory, his own senses, but then found inside, a, I think he found a love. Um, and... Um, Christian Wyman, who linked us, uh, has a beautiful phrase that love always wants to move upwards. It never sits there. And I do think when you um, find the presence of love in yourself, find the presence of love for a child or for a man or a woman, I think it, it, I do have a sense that it moves you upward and you discover you become present to a lot of other loves, including God's love. Uh, And so it's, I think for a lot of people, it's a process, and maybe for me, it's a process of the heart sort of being warm to one thing, and then in that state, um, going off and discover the discovering other loves. So that love is not right. I mean, that's one of the things. That, one of the reasons I think we have such a hard time comprehending agape, and maybe can't ever really get it, is we're used to th- we've commodified everything. Um, so if you have a certain amount of love, that's, that's an amount that I can't have. Or if you're directing your love in one direction, it can't go in another, right? But right. what you're saying is the way that one's discovery of love works instead is, oh, if I love this person, that leads me to want to love, or maybe that's what Chris was saying, that leads me to want to love, you know, this land, this God. Yeah. yeah. It's a terrific And then idea. I would say the love is transformed sometimes you love a person, but it's it's a mutual love, and you have whatever you fall in love, you have a relationship, or you have. But but then you, I think there's a ladder of love. Just Plato talks about the ladder of beauties that you start when you're young, and you see a beautiful face, and you think, oh, that she's so beautiful. But then when you discover that kind of beauty, you discover a higher kind of beauty, which is the love of ideas, and then you discover a higher kind of beauty, which is the love of justice and society. And then that leads to a higher kind of beauty, which is the love of the, the universe as a cosmos. Um, and as Plato puts it, to which nothing can be added and nothing subtracted. And I think love works like that. You have a selfish love, which is, you know, I want this person to really like me and I want to feel good all the time. But then it, I think in a lot of people's hearts, especially when they become parents or when they have just a deep, passionate love, it turns closer into a selfless love. And then especially if you're, uh, surrounded by theological literature, you go to church or synagogue, you um, or a mosque, you um, you discover a love. We discover agape, which is a love for things which is not lovable. Yeah. Uh, and that, I think, that immediately strikes us all as the high, a very high and pure and beautiful form of love. And so we, I do think, 
our soul has a tendency to want to chase that beauty. And there's a way in, in an Augustinian frame that you ha- in order to really get that, the, the, the reality of a love for that which is unlovable, you have to recognize yourself as unlovable, right? I mean, yeah. The so in a in a climate in a secular culture like the one that we're rapidly becoming, where we're still we're you know we're in that morally romantic place uh, still. I mean, you say we're kind of moving into a meritocracy. You know, a, a meritocracy is our primary way of understanding. But I would say, at least in my religious world. Uh, in the liberal church, we're still very much in a place of, um, of, of moral romanticism in your term is if we don't want to reckon with sin as a primary determiner of, of who we are and how we got here, is it possible to see grace? Is it possible to see agape? Um, do you think that an awareness of grace is dependent upon, an awareness of sin? I do, um, because you you have to have a sense that you're loved beyond your desert. <laughs> and then and then at the moment, uh, I think, frankly, I think we experience grace both in this world and in a divine sense when we've messed up in some amazing way and we don't deserve to be forgiven, but we are. Uh, I think that the, those are when grace becomes shocking. Uh, there's a Paul Tillich passage that um, where grace of, as acceptance, yeah, and I used to really like that, and I do like that that concept that you're you're accepted into something. Um, but I I think what sometimes when we think of grace, we think of just this smooth, gentle thing, but occasionally grace is is really radical and shocking because it it by definition it defies logic, it defies merit, uh, it's um, it's excessive in its capacity for love and forgiveness and at those moments i think you really uh you're slapped in the face by grace if i can put it that way absolutely and, uh, yeah. Um, yeah that and it, that's it, when you the concept really hits you with barrel force the concept of of a love for the unlovable yeah and that, yeah. that you are you are sinful and yeah. yet you've been received grace that's a strange thing isn't it um and and I agree. I mean, in my own personal experience of receiving God's grace, it um, it cuts me. Not always, but some, sometimes it's gentle and, and beautiful. But sometimes it slices me open in order to heal me. Because if I hear you right, and this is my experience, to be the recipient of such radical free love is like... You can't help but think, how how did this happen? You know, why has this happened to me? What have I done to deserve this? And then your your answer is nothing. In fact, it's here despite myself because I got a problem, right? Um, there's, I can't think of an analog for that. It's not like if all of a sudden somebody, I mean, there's no material analog. If if, if somebody puts a feast in front of you, you realize you're hungry. You know, that's strange. Right. Yeah. And I do think, and this is in the ways I think Christianity is most radical compared to our current dominant culture. It's um, we do. There's a phase uh, we we try to buy the gift that God has already given us, and our instinct is to want to do something to earn it and to adopt the posture that it's unearnable. 
is a very radical posture because we've all been raised to work hard to get into the right college and then work hard to get the right job. And that sense of desert is just um, that we deserve. We have to work hard and get what we deserve. That logic, um, which is sort of an economic logic, is baked into us. And I would say when I teach college, it's very hard to get the utilitarian vocabulary and the utilitarian logic out of students' minds. And it's hard for me personally. I always like revert back to it. Um, if I read these six books and do this homework assignment, then my faith will be pure because I'll have understood it better. And it's um, very hard to get out of that mindset. But grace and the concept of sin is the is the thing that um, in moments of grace are, are show you the 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 paradoxical strength of surrender. And it's interesting when you get those glimpses of the fact that the power underlying everything is not transactional um, and isn't fair, right? Isn't given out according to that kind of logic. There's a strange way in which once you receive some of that or, or see that way, you're able to see it much more. You described in, a, in an interview I listened to a moment of grace that was so um, every day and pedestrian in some ways of pulling, of, of driving home and seeing your children playing with a ball from the supermarket on a beautiful summer evening and that you were just seized by this sense of having been given more than you deserve, that which you don't deserve. Um, and I think we can see those relatively easy, beautiful moments of grace more clearly once we start seeing them. Do you know what I mean? Like it builds upon yeah, itself. No, I think, yeah, that, that's true. The, the, um, partly I think like all forms of love, it, it, um, it, it makes you softer and but we all go through life with a sort of a, an everyday crust that we carry around in our world. And it, it takes some powerful emotional experience to, um, uh, to pierce through the crust and to get you to experience a moment is not just, Oh, my kids are playing with the ball, but as a moment of, um, of emotional power. And those don't happen every day, but I do think the more you're, the more you're vulnerable to those moments, you, you can make yourself, I do think you can make yourself, uh, through prayer or through reading or through music or through literature, you can make yourself more open to moments of vulnerability than if you spend your life in the in some sort of arena. I do think we can condition ourselves for moments of grace and then appreciate them better when they come. That's beautiful. I mean, I think at some level we have to, I agree with that and very much so, and that at some level we have to articulate the absence in our lives in order to start to see the contours into which the presence can step. The pre I mean, we have to, you know what I mean? We have to like see that which isn't there, um, God, the God which isn't there, the, you know, the, the absence of Christ in order, and to see that almost as a real thing in order to have eyes for and a heart for uh, the gift when it comes. Right. And I'm, I wonder if often, uh, it's like, well, this may be too crude, but like you don't appreciate your health till you're sick. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have good health, but you don't go through life thinking about it. One of the great gifts of being a minister is, this is a, a selfish, narcissistic gift, but as a young man, I was making visits to hospitals and nursing homes, and not a time went by to this day that I didn't, you know, step off the elevator out of the hospital 
into the street without thinking, thank God I can walk, you know? It, yeah. yeah. yeah um, sure. Do you see anyone reading the Christian century, um, anybody in the world of mainline Protestantism these days is well aware that of uh, something I recently heard you say, which is the 50s aren't coming back. The mainline church as a, as a thing that helps us make sense nationally, culturally, uh, in a sort of mm-hmm. monoculture is gone. Um, yeah. and in my, I've been in this tradition my whole life. There are things about it. I love it. Like I feel about it, like a family of origin, you know, it made me what I am and yeah. I kind of can't stand it, <laughs> but I have to love right. it. And I do. <laughs> right. Right. Um, accepting our marginalization, um, and, and, you know, we're not at the center. We're not as important anymore or even important at all. What does the mainline have to offer the nation right now? I would say it has um, a couple of things. First, it has a rich tradition um, of the- rich theological tradition. Second, and this is sound trivial, but I don't mean it like this. It has very beautiful buildings. <laughs> uh, I experience God very architecturally. Um, third, I would say it has a, um, a tradition of intellectual rigor, but um, emotional gentleness that sometimes is not always present in the evangelical tradition, the more conservative churches. Um, I, I'm, you know, Mark Knowles, the scandal of the evangelical mind um, has, you know, I think there's some validity to, to that. Um, and I spend a lot of time on in those churches and in on those campuses. Uh, and sometimes the, for one reason or another, which Mark Knowles can describe better than I, there, there's not the tradition of, of, um, just tough thinking. Um, uh, and then finally, uh, one of the things young people in particular long for is a place where they can go and that will offer them uh, a profound sense of peace from distraction, which their lives are all too filled with. Uh, and that doesn't try to be relevant to social media, but stands apart from social media. That's a sanctuary, a sanctuary that leads to something deeper. Uh, is almost a Sabbath from their lives, but which at the same time won't assault their values in their face, at least the values they walk in with. And uh, I find the mainline tradition very satisfying to me. I'm very much in the 1950s Christian theologian tradition, uh, sort of at a place out of time, uh, and feel more at home in that than, say, in um, you know, the modern, a lot of the modern evangelical churches or you know, other places. Uh, and so I, I just think there's a historical beauty that sort of um, became self-marginalizing in an attempt to be relevant, uh, but but uh, and but now is in a position, especially for a large percent of the population that is looking for some sort of deeper meaning in their life, uh, in a way that's that's um, not hostile to their way of life. Uh, I still somehow think that uh, the mainline churches are are well poised for that if they can have the courage of their own conviction. Oh, I love the way you put it, and I agree with the gentleness. I feel like I've been the beneficiary and hopefully an extender of that uh, my whole life long. Um, I kind of gave away my own frustration as I asked the question, which is I don't think that we can do those things that you've described and meet those needs until we 
get off of our attempt to sort of self-correct Christianity itself and uh, until we get back in some ways to a, you know, a generously orthodox, as they say, understanding of the faith. Um, because people aren't coming in. They're coming in out of a lack. Young people are into church out of a lack. And we're not going to meet that lack if we attempt to become who they are. Um, so I, I think at some level, the future of the mainline is going to reside upon our, our ability to, to rearticulate the things we've been talking about, sin and grace. Yeah. And one of the, I, I do think that I'm certainly drawn to faith by people who are faithful and who are nakedly faithful. Uh, the other just more mundane historical point is that uh, uh, we had a, a version of Christianity that was very popular in America until the sexual revolution. And then large elements of Christianity just became dissenters because they wanted to fight a culture war over the sexual revolution. I think that culture war, even for the Liberty universities, universities of the world is coming to an end that um, there are certain things that will remain very contentious like abortion, but other things will not like gay marriage. And, and so I do think our future moral disputes will have less to do with the sexual revolution and more to do with the actual life of Jesus and the service to the poor and the attention to the marginalized. Uh, and I, I do think the mainline churches, which were marginalized during the culture war, um, are certainly have the possibility of becoming unmarginalized. Oh, may it be so. Amen. That'll be like uh, music <laughs> yeah. to people's ears, David. I couldn't help but yeah. think when you were talking about the buildings, like maybe we ought to conceive of ourselves as uh, mid-century modern furniture, right? Everybody loves that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Environment is very powerful. Music and architecture are very beautiful ways to communicate faith. Thank you, David. I really appreciate it so much. And I know that the folks who read and listen to this are, are going to benefit from your insight um, even more than they do already. Okay. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. It gave me a little, as I as I anticipated, a lift out of my normal world into a, a realm of the important things. So I, oh, that's I good. This is the longest yeah. I've gone without speaking with somebody about Donald Trump in the last week. So that's <laughs> no <laughs> kidding. No <laughs> kidding. <laughs> Let's be grateful. Okay. Thanks. See you. God bless you. Thank you.